we had the two new environment artists. I was the environment art lead. And one of the environment artists asked me, I don't remember the exact question, but essentially how, how to make this, uh, this asset was the best approach. And uh, in my mind, I had uh, several different approaches that uh, all had their pluses and minuses, and I actually didn't know what to tell, tell, tell the person. Um, and uh, it might have been a specific kind of a usage case that I just wasn't very clear on. So, yeah, I remember thinking I should know this. I should know this. I I, sh I shouldn't know what to tell this person. But uh, yeah, then then I, then I realized that that was not the right right approach for me. Um, the moment I said I, I don't know, let's find out together. Everything afterwards just became a lot easier. Welcome to Building Better Games, where we dive into what matters most in game development, leaders, and culture. Your hosts are Aaron Smith and Benjamin Carsage. Aaron and Ben are two veteran game industry leaders who have served a global audience of gamers and want to change how games are made. Hey everyone, welcome back to Building Better Games. Uh, today we have the Great honor of talking to Grace Liu. Uh, I worked with Grace a long time ago um, in, on League of Legends, and uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about leadership and different leadership styles, how they relate to the creative space. Grace, do you want to just do a quick intro? Um, yeah. Hello. Uh, I'm Grace. I started the, my journey in the game industry in 2009, right after the Great Recession, which is super, super easy to remember. I started in a small studio in Austin uh, called Redfly Studios. And uh, after a year, I had the honor to go to Blizzard and work on the Diablo and uh, Diablo 3 and the expansion. And in 2013, I went over to Riot Games, um, worked with Ben here um, on Summer Strip Update. Um, 2015, I moved back to Austin, Texas, because it's a really cool city. I joined a small startup called Airship Syndicate, um, worked on Battle Chasers, Night War, um, Darksiders Genesis, and uh, Rune King, um, a League of Legends story, because I just couldn't get enough of Riot. Um, in 2020, I joined the Monami Park, which is a small indie studio based in the Bay Area, but I was working remotely. So I was working on Slime Mantra 2 when I was there, and recently um, I decided to join Netflix Games. Awesome. Cool. Okay, so um, before we started this, we, we kind of were talking a little bit about leadership and leadership styles. And I think a lot of people have the assumption that when you are a leader, you're in front of the room, you're calling the shots, you're making, you know, projecting confidence and everybody's looking up to you and you're kind of, we're going to go take that hill. And there's this assertiveness, this aggressive style. Um, and you had a different approach to leadership. And I don't know, I'm just curious, what, what is that? Like, how would you describe it? Um, so, yeah, I am more on the introverted side, um, even though I do like to do fun stuff like board game sessions with my friends. So for the longest time, I actually didn't think uh, I had anything to do with the, the leadership thing because, uh, you know, um, I, I don't feel like I have the alpha personality. But at one point, it occurred to me that some of my favorite leaders are not really necessarily the front of the room uh, telling people what to do. 
I really enjoy working with leaders who are very supportive. They um, try to figure out your strengths and your take on things, and they try to enable that, and that's their focus. Um, so yeah, when a situation ar arises and uh, my team needed a leader, I decided to step up and uh, try to see if I can work like that. And it turned out uh, turned out that it was just fine. Everything worked out very smoothly. Um, from a supportive mindset, I'm able to empower my teammates and uh, enable them to be the best versions of themselves. Without me feeling very stressed, uh, I don't have to have all the answers and stuff like that. How did that first experience go? It was. Uh, it started out very awkwardly. I think most uh, most people who are not too leading will find themselves in a little bit of uh, just uh, learning and trying to figure everything out all at once um, step. But the moment you actually gave up the notion that you're supposed to know everything, more mm -hmm. a collaborative mindset where you're figuring things out with your teammates and figure out how to unblock them, everything just kind of flows from there. I would say it was actually surprisingly easy for me to get into that flow. You said there was awkwardness when you first started, and I think a lot of people can kind of intellectually understand that, um, or at least like, oh yeah, I could, that that makes sense. What, like, what did you, what do you mean when you say that? To like dive into that a little bit more, because I think that is a common experience when you first step into leadership and you're like, okay, what am I doing? How do I do it? Yeah, for sure. Um, for the longest time, I actually avoided stepping into the leadership because of that awkwardness, because I did not feel comfortable having power over people per se. Mm. It is a lot of responsibility in my mind to have some to be responsible for someone's uh, career as well as uh, responsible for a team's success. So um, for the longest time, I didn't want it. I just wanted to be one of the one of the dudes or one of the guys on the team, and uh, where we can I can be friends with everybody. You know, we can maybe complain together about leadership instead. <laughs> <laughs> so getting over that mindset and. Uh, I think the first several one-on-ones was uh, really awkward where I had to awkwardly accept that I am in charge of this person in front of me and uh, I have mm. to do what's best for them. And then I have to get over this uncomfortableness in myself. So there's this transition that I think one makes that you made going from, I'm just another member of the team to now I'm one of those people maybe that we used to complain about. How does that transition work? How did that work for you? And what what was going on for you mentally as you made that transition? Um, for me, it happened, uh, even though the beginning was a little uncomfortable for probably at least uh, a couple months, um, the, the mental switch happened pretty naturally. Because when I think when a person takes responsibility for another person's success in a way uh, where you're managing them, um, I think it's very natural for you to understand that your relationship is no longer the same. You mm -hmm. you have to look out for their own good versus uh, um, in a more equal kind of teammate ship, friendship kind of level. I think you it's a little more give and take. Um, you also want something out of the relationship emotionally. Um, you're trying to make sure you, you're both uh, emotionally very happy and uh, everything's kind of equal. I guess uh, when you're managing someone, it becomes more about them than about yourself. At least that's how it worked out for me. Mm. How did that, what, did, what do you mean when you say that? Like it was more about them than yourself? Like, yeah, just explore that more. 
Um, so if someone comes to me with a with an issue, I'm no longer commiserating with them. I do that a little bit so they can relate to they know I'm relating to them. But at the same time, my focus is now to solve that issue, make sure that person is happy. I'm not as concerned about whether this person is judging me by saying this, or whether um, they are actually there's any any kind of undertone. Um, I can't worry about that. I worry about how to solve the solve, solve the problem, how to unblock this person. And what when when you were shifting into that, and and I mean you've been doing this a long time now, right? I think you've been an art director for a, a year, and uh, yeah. I was an art lead for two years and art director yeah. for a year. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you've been doing this for a while. Um, when when that shift first happened, um, were there things that were just much less natural for you? Like you, I mean, you mentioned the awkwardness earlier, but you said yeah, it kind of made the transition. Um, but were there things where it was like, you know, now you look back at yourself leading three years ago and you go like, man, I wish I'd had this lesson then. I would say there were some key moments that I was uh, thinking back, I feel pretty happy that I just somehow fell into the correct conclusions. For example, it's I'm a pretty stubborn person on my own. So it's actually very difficult for me to admit that I don't know something or I'm at fault for something. Mm-hmm. This has always been a personal flaw for me. But uh, when I first started becoming art lead, um, my uh, new teammates who are straight uh, straight out of school or very fresh into the industry. So I felt like uh, as someone who's been in the industry for a decade by that time, I should know everything that they don't. Mm-hmm. But uh, when they first uh, asked me questions that I didn't have answers to, I literally remember that moment where I just completely panicked internally, but trying to hold it together externally, trying to be that person that I wanted to be that pillar for the team. And that, that's where I realized is to be that pillar for the team. I can't pretend I know something I don't. I can't just give a vague answer and uh, you know, hope that they maintain that fake trust or respect. I had to just be honest that I didn't know. And uh, then I have to figure out a way we can find out with them. So that's, that was like one of the major, major moments for me. I'm curious if there's like a story you could tell about that, about like kind of that shift and when you realize like I have to this I, I can't do this thing I have to say I don't know like I'm you know maybe I'm undermining trust or I'm I'm I realize I'm projecting I'm no longer authentic um I guess uh, that moment was a uh, it's pretty straightforward it was more um we had a two new environment artists I was the environment art lead and one of the environment artists artists asked me I don't remember the exact question, but essentially how how to make this uh, this asset was the best approach. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my mind, I had uh, several different approaches that uh, all had their pluses and minuses, and I actually didn't know what to tell 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 the person. Um, and uh, it might have been a specific kind of a usage case that I just wasn't very clear on. So. Yeah, I remember thinking I should know this. I should know this. I mm-hmm. I, sh- I shouldn't know what to tell this person, but uh, yeah, th- then then I then I realized that that was not the right right approach for me. Um, the moment I said I I don't know, let's find out together. Everything afterwards just became a lot easier because in the future it becomes easier and easier to say that, and uh, I was less judgmental about myself and less insecure. And I also discovered that when you say that to people, they are empowered. 
because it's no longer a relationship where they don't they know nothing and you know everything. It's a relationship where we are really partners and we are finding this out together. One of the things I think is so interesting, and it seems like this is starting to change in the last 10 years or so, and people are starting to talk about this more. Um, you know, the story you just told was interesting because it's focused on the dynamic between you and the people who were responsible to you or accountable to you and how you sort of created trust with them by acknowledging that you didn't know everything as a leader. One of the things I think is so tough about leaders with the profile you're describing or leaders that are more introverted or or less or more back of the room leaders is that the trust you can you can actually more rapidly build trust with the people that are quote unquote underneath you but where sometimes it's difficult to build trust is with the other leaders that are working laterally to you or the leaders that are above you. You know, there's mm-hmm. something so comforting about this command and control. Like, I have an answer. I know what we need to do. I've got a plan. It's my strategy. Here's my PowerPoint presentation. I'm going to draw some cool shapes on the whiteboard and you're all going to give me a round of applause. And even if I have no idea what I'm talking about, there's this sort of air of confidence and you know, I know it's something I've struggled with in my career, and I think I tend to be more naturally toward the front of the room. And I'm wondering what that's been like for you, because it sounds like you found your principles and your ethics and your personal approach. Uh, but I know sometimes that's hard because other leaders are judging you based on what they think a good leader should be. So how how are those relationships with the other leaders that you worked with? Did anyone ever give you a hard time or did you ever feel like you struggled to be seen as a leader? Um, I know that might be a little bit of a loaded question, but I'm, I'm just curious what your experiences have been w- amongst other leaders and their expectations of you. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I will say so far I've been very lucky because um, none of the leaders I've worked with are, are very um, front of the room or macho or alpha, however you say this. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody has been um, emp- empathy driven. Um, but uh, yeah, there are definitely people who have uh, different different leadership styles and uh, have had conversations with them about uh, potentially taking a step back and let, letting the team shine. Because uh, I think ultimately, if you hire very talented, creative people who are doing the job daily, more than leader leadership people usually have time to do, you would hope that they know better than the mm-hmm. leader when it comes to spe- specific tasks. And mm-hmm. the people want to feel that they are the experts too, um, especially you know the more senior people, the, the more subject matter experts, they're happier if they realize that you know their expertise. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, I worked, with a, I worked with one person who probably didn't have as much... Um, security from 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 previous leaders so um they would uh, constantly remind me of their industry experience when when i try to give a suggestion and uh, as a response i just started repeating to that person his uh, industry experience um <laughs> just just so they know i know and after you know, after repeating this several times, everything was much much smoother because uh, they understand that I respect and trust them. I I do respect and trust them, so we got over talking about that, mm-hmm. and we can actually solve the problem. So, 
then, and I, I just want to poke on the question that Aaron asked, have you ever run into conflicts with leaders with other styles where they have an expectation of you, especially those above you, for answers or like, why didn't you, you know, step, stand in front of everybody and say, this is what matters or something like that? Um, or have you just been in organizations where actually that hasn't been a problem? Yeah, it has not been a problem. Um, I have gotten uh, feedback that, that maybe I should be more assertive in certain points and I have been, they're all great feedbacks. So for me, the complimentary side is definitely if people are not, they don't feel like they know what to do, um, there or people are just heading uh, to several different directions. I have become a little more stronger in stepping up and uh, taking the reins there. This is a broad question, but I'm curious because we haven't got into it a ton. So you've talked uh, a little bit about how you sort of hold yourself accountable and the things you aspire to be as a, um, again, I'll call it a back of the room leader. I actually like that that terminology, back of the room leader, front of the room leader, both super effective in their own ways. Is there a view that you have in like the broader space when you look at leadership in games? Um, what do you see that is working really well? And what do you see that feel you feel like is not working super well in the context of front of the room, back of the room leadership? Okay. Um, I guess uh, I'll start with the front of the room leadership. Um, I think it works really well when um, the team needs a morale boost. In some ways, if team feels uh, kind of uncertain, um, mm. we drift towards confidence. The front mm. of the room leaders tend to extrude that confidence and the people are just... Uh, feel good about following them, they would literally follow that leader off of uh, like a broken bridge. Um, that's, uh, you know, um, you could say that's uh, pretty effective sometimes, uh, especially if, uh, if if you're just trying to rally the team and go one direction. Mm -hmm. It works really well. People feel good following those leaders. Mm -hmm. um, when that does not work as well is when the, the front of the room leaders tend to do most of the talking and don't listen enough. Uh, this is not to say all friends of the room leaders do this, but there is a tendency that uh, some some people in, in the effort to seem confident to be that leader that knows everything, um, they shut down the side conversations. Um, they make people feel like uh, they have to listen instead of uh, they have input. Um, so there, there are times where I have, uh, in the past, I have experienced leaders who um, just are uncomfortable when people question their decisions in any way. You, even mm. in public or even in private. Mm. And I think this is very detrimental. What do you think's going on there? I've seen that too, where um, that that idea of um, I'm compromised if I'm questioned or I'm compromised if people feel that maybe I don't know or that maybe what I'm saying is wrong. What, what do you think's going on there when you see that? Um, I think it's a... I think it's a security. It's a it's a confidence issue deep down, mm. and uh, also I think maybe it's the perception that uh, people trust you because you know everything, which is uh, I don't believe it's a very valid perception. But some people truly believe that. Mm -hmm. um, if you you feel like your entire leadership style is the confidence person who always knows the next step. I've seen this in leadership books, by the way. This is supposedly a good quality. I'm not sure, but uh, if if you base your entire bad self value on that. I think uh, when people question, you know, the leader's decision, the leader will feel very threatened. What do you put under, like, Aaron talked about principles and the ethics that guide your leadership. And as we're talking through this, um, what what do you put as like, hey, these 
if you were to, you know, you've been an art director, you've probably had art leads that you've either selected or hired or interacted with who reported to you and were accountable to you. Like when you're thinking about someone in that role, what are you looking for? Um, I'm looking for a fundamental willingness to support the team. I think that to me is the most important quality. I believe that when a person steps into leadership roles, even though we see a lot of star developers, star leaders, and people's names on game boxes, I actually think that's the wrong goal for leadership. I think I, I fully believe that the, a leader's uh, most important function is to part the team and make the team shine. So if someone is not ready to kind of take a even take a step back mentally and to think that this is not my my stage to shine, I'm setting the stage for the team to shine. I think that's a really big red flag for me. What else? What else do you see? Like when you when you're bringing someone up, you know, so I'm willingness to support the team. What else is in there? Um, I would like to, someone who has a certain amount of uh, mental security, just a, kind of a mental toughness. Um, that person, I mean, we all have uh, imposter syndromes, especially on the art side. I don't know if uh, it's true for designers or engineer or other disciplines, but artists, we, ha- we have to be comfortable with having that imposter syndrome, um, deal with it instead of uh, being someone who, you know, we don't we don't we don't want to we don't want to to constantly be questioning ourselves when we are also trying to support a team. I think that's uh, very difficult to do. And I think one of the main functions of leadership is being that pillar that the team can lean on. So you can't be the pillar that's collapsing so the team have to hold you up. So if I were to read this too simply, I would I would be like, wait a minute, there's a contradiction there. On the one hand, like you don't need to have all the answers. On the other hand, you have to be a confident pillar. Um, despite your imposter syndrome. And obviously, like, I, I think I understand, but could you just, like, sort of harmonize those things? Yeah, for sure. Um, so what I'm t- really talking about is uh, being comfortable about not knowing everything. No yeah. matter what, how, uh, in some ways, it's almost like being comfortable with being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You have to, I, I think a good leader should acknowledge their own limits, uh, their own vulnerabilities. And uh, not let that become an obstacle for for them to kind of focus on the problems to solve and people to support. These are all like distractions that uh, I think a good leaders should be able to look past. So uh, you mentioned imposter syndrome earlier, and certainly in the space of production, most of the good producers I know have at multiple points uh, certainly struggled immensely with imposter syndrome. And I think uh, I certainly do constantly, and um, uh, Aaron's also expressed like <laughs> it's. I think it's. I think it's pretty ubiquitous. Um, you mentioned specifically in art, though, that like that can be a big thing. Is there is there something unique to the space of art or creative endeavor that you find relates to imposter syndrome? Um, yeah, I think maybe artists art art imposter syndrome probably is just slightly different because art is such a visible discipline. Mm-hmm. And artists like to post stuff online and uh, you can see a lot of portfolios and uh, it's very easy to see a piece of art that you can't do and think, wow, that's a better artist, which in itself is not really necessarily a good assessment because all artists have different strengths and weaknesses and styles and stuff like that. Art is, uh, one, one thing about art is it can't be quantified into numbers. It's, a, it's a, its own unique thing. Each artist does its own unique art. But it's easy for an artist to look at the amazing amount of 
all smart out there and to say, I can't do that. I am trash. So I think that's the uniqueness of an artist art imposter syndrome. I remember, um, I think, yeah, it was 2013 and you just arrived with the Summoner's Rift team. And I don't, I don't even know if you knew how excited Andrew and I were, um, when this happened, but you showed up and we were like just struggling to make content and put it in the game. We were kind of locked up, I think, in the process and what we were trying to make and all these things. And I remember like in the first week you were there, you just knocked out these two, I forget what they, like we had a name for them, but you just, you just made these two things and we're like, Hey, these will be the little, um, spaces the player can't walk inside of the base. Um, like the blue base, you know, that's it. That's what, that's what I've, I've made that right. Like, and I remember just being like, so excited because everybody else was trying to was agonizing so much in some sense is it good enough is it right what's the quality of art and we had i mean that was that was an amazing team from a talent side as far as i'm concerned like there were a lot of very good environment artists there um and and yet you came in and you were just like well everybody and i remember i remember thinking this i was like everybody feels stuck and then grace just made something we were like oh, it's amazing let that and i don't even know if we shipped those things i think they probably got updated or changed but it like it sort of jump started to some extent an engine of like hey let's put something in the game um so i don't i do you remember that and what was going through your head as you showed up um as it relates to like this art and the imposter syndrome you were just describing and all these things because i know you had a lot of respect for a lot of the artists that were on that team too yeah for sure um, I think I had the advantage of uh, I, I sh- showed up uh, at Riot with a lot of energy because, uh, yeah, uh, previously I had been working on Diablo 3 and uh, the expansion for several years. Um, it's a very fun project, but I think uh, a lot of us can relate to that. Once you're on the franchise for, for a bit, it becomes kind of the norm. Mm-hmm. So it's exciting when you jump on the new project. I also I benefit from... A philosophy, personally, philosophy. This is more like a developer philosophy than a leadership philosophy. But uh, um, I believe that uh, at a lot, a lot of different points of creating a game, people are facing this blank piece of paper, and it's very intimidating. I believe that uh, the only way to combat that is put some, put down something, even if it's really, really bad, onto that piece of paper. Then you have a starting point. Then people can go, "I hate that." Even getting I hate that is a great direction to go next. Mm-hmm. It's not a blank sheet of paper anymore. Not people, you, you've broken that, uh, that really scary, solid space. Mm-hmm. That, that ends up being a hang-up, I feel like, for creatives in game development. We talk a lot about incentives on this podcast, and I think one of the reasons why is because I think in a broad sense, artists specifically are incentivized to show off their very best and to be the best crafts people they can be. Um, even in so far as I often see that an artist's resume and portfolio end up being 90% of why they get hired and the rest of the 10% is how good of a team player they are or you know, or whatever, depending on the company. Um, and, and I've empathized with a lot of artists in the past because when I've talked to them about this, you know, and, and usually as a producer, it comes in the form of like, hey, I get that this isn't really exciting. I get that this doesn't really test you as an artist. Um, I'm essentially asking you to go back to like some kind of 101 shit. 
and and because we need to ship these like very baseline skins or we just have this stuff that needs to be filled in or basically the not super sexy stuff. And one of the concerns I've always heard from artists is, hey, I can't work on this stuff for that long or I feel bad about working on this stuff. And it's not because I don't care about it. Like I care about the players and I care about this stuff, but it's because I feel like I'm being judged on the quality of my portfolio. And if I want to keep getting better jobs and I want to keep being respected in this industry, I need to work on like the flashy stuff, the stuff that's really beautiful, the stuff that like tests me to my limits. And I'm wondering like, how do you work with artists when it comes to that? Uh, how do you how do you help focus them on the right things? Because I, I do think the industry a lot of the time pulls them in weird ways and incentivizes them in weird ways. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I had given this a lot of thought, especially in the last year. And um, my current belief is that if we understand what people actually want, I mean, you can say you can see the artists just want better art, mm-hmm. and you can just say that's what they want, but that's not true. If you ask ask the artists what their eventual career goals are, usually um, a lot of artists want to be either principal artist, a lead, or a art director. That's usually the three most common like end career goals. So understanding this goal is hugely important to me as a leader because once I understand what their goals are, I can talk about stuff that's beyond art. We can align the company and the team's goals with their goals better. An individual artist is never going to fully align with the with mm-hmm. a company that needs to make a product and uh, make a, make something fun for the players, make a just a, a cohesive thing where we essentially herd a bunch of wildcat artists together to make something that looks mm-hmm. kind of uh, together. That mm-hmm. it re- it, that itself re- it requires a lot of uh, compromise. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I think if being able to focus, uh, take the focus beyond just like uh, individual fulfillment in art, it's a huge uh, mental step for both the artists in their career growth and the company and the team in uh, bringing the artists closer to their actual goals. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, as I'm hearing you talk to this, uh, this idea of quality is something that just always comes up to like, I, I can think of several situations where I had like this large council of people uh, talking about what it meant for this product to be high quality. What it, and, and I know that there's often a push pull between production or management or leadership and then the creatives, the artists on the team um, and finding that sweet spot, which is like, this looks beautiful enough and we need to, we don't want to go any farther than this. Um, or, hey, we want to increase the quality of it. Well, what does that actually mean? You know, like a, um, a particular example comes to mind in that we did some studies, I think back in like 2012, 2013 or something like that, where we reached out to players and compared artwork and things like that um, from League of Legends to other companies because we wanted to hear what players' perceptions were about quality. And and some of the information that came back was surprising. Like uh, in general, the players perceived the quality of the art on League of Legends higher than we thought they would. Um, the old League of Legends before the old the, the old League of Legends, yeah, and 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 it's so interesting, right? This sort of like idea of player value versus 
what you feel internally is like the right quality level. And I feel like artists are so often at the center of that discussion. And, and it's, and I, I'm curious, like, again, as an art leader, I'm sure you run into these kinds of situations all the time, right? Like, where do we make trade-offs? Where do we make compromises? How good is good enough? And how do we serve our audience and understand what they need while at the same time serving the uh, the needs of the individual artists in their careers. Uh, that stuff I've found is really challenging. Like, what are the big things that come up for you as I'm saying all that? And like, how have you managed your way through that? Right, I think the first thing I think about is uh, I don't think there's a perfect solution. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, one, one trait that I've seen from creatives in the game industry is we we are not the people who really like to have blanket rules. We don't like rigidity. We want to feel, you know, we want to feel kind of special. There are moments of highlights, and I think part of uh, part of the management goals should be to provide this and enable this so people are happy. Oh. If people feel like they have their moment in the highlight, they'll do the mundane things happily. Yeah, that explains why I'm so terrible with working with artists. Right there, actually, I think so. I'm. I'm I'm being hard on myself, but yeah. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. I think it's great to have uh, baseline goals. Um, and uh, here is where I see even more alignment between art and produ- production. Yeah. End of the day, the artist, no, nobody really likes to be forced to do overtime. It's weird because if you give people the opportunity to put in a like, little extra if they really want mm-hmm. to, a lot of people <clears throat> will do that. But uh, if you start forcing people to do overtime, people's productivity actually goes way down. And yeah. Their motivation goes down. They get stressed out. The team gets really, really unhappy, right? Yeah. You know, it's 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 really funny. One thing that just struck me with what you were saying there is this almost this idea of creating a sandbox. Like great leaders will cre- will help create, work with the artists and the creatives to create like the sandbox. Um, I think that that's, I've never thought about it in those terms until I just heard you describing that. And actually, we, we t- when we were talking to David Klaus a couple of weeks ago, I think that idea kind of came up or, you know, leaders, a challenge for leaders is to like release their grip a little bit. Like, how do you release your grip, but still make sure to control the chaos at least a little bit, right? Like the creative chaos, it's, it's a delicate balance. And it is, I think, a lot different than working with more technical or engineering teams or more traditional project management stuff. Oh yeah, I've talked to engineers and this drives them crazy. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I believe that uh, we're, we're establishing a baseline, yeah. and then we allow a lot of little exceptions to kind of uh, keep the creativity going and mm-hmm. also just to keep people happy. Mm-hmm. I think uh, both a balance between those two is uh, really necessary. Yeah. So yeah, I think uh, it's really important to establish that. Uh, common goal and expectations. Um, end of the day, nobody wants to be crunching weeks on end. So if the artist spends too much time on something, um, it takes time from something else mm-hmm. or the whole team mm-hmm. crunches a lot more. I think everybody can all agree that that's not necessarily a good thing. I think logically, yeah. logically people understand. But if you consistently to ask someone to keep making sacrifice for the team or making art that they are not proud of, that is a, a, a mental drain as well. Mm-hmm. So I think managing that um, while focusing focusing them back onto the 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 ultimate goal is we all I think the ultimate goal in mm-hmm. making games really is we make a game we are fairly proud of, and then we do that without getting divorces. 
Um, there's, there's something you said earlier and I, I don't know these, these two things, one of them really struck me. You said that like the nature of being an artist working on a product is inherently a compromising role. Um, like I can't, and there's something I remember actually Pete used to say, um, and I think it was sort of his way of managing this because he was a very, he was a phenomenal artist. I still view him as one of the like best sort of principal artists. Like it was, he was very good at what he did and very diverse in what he could do. And I think he always said, um, I'm a game developer first and an artist second. Um, and I think that was one of his ways of sort of acknowledging the compromise. I, but I hadn't thought about it that way. And so when you're leading people, when you're managing others or leading leaders who are leading others, how do you encourage them through that? If they're, if they don't want to compromise, if they're like, no, we, we like, I, I want to put my mark on this or wait, it doesn't seem like it's as good as it could be. We should spend more time. What, what's that conversation like? And what do you draw them towards? Oh yeah. If that's never going to be an easy conversation. Um, you, on one hand, uh, we're balancing between a person's passion, which is really, really great for the team, really important. But uh, the actual resources the team has, the team priorities. Um, I think the first step is to bring that person into acknowledging like these are team team priorities and these are reasonable. Because mm-hmm. when people think uh, everybody actually wants to be reasonable, nobody wants to kind of, uh, nobody comes out to be like, I'm the star developer, I'm the diva. I'm going to make the whole team conform to me. If you ask people that's what they want, they will tell you no. So mm-hmm. I think uh, as, as, as soon as it, it becomes a, apparent that this is why we are doing, we are needing this prioritization, this is why we need things to be a certain way for very, very practical reasons. You know, half a team, we, we want, you know, that guy over there to have time with their, their kids, kids on the weekends, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. I think it's very human and people usually will understand it. And that's where we start. Uh, again, like if if a person's the fundamental goal is just I want to make the best art possible, and your team is too small to support that, uh, like you don't have two weeks for that person to make one asset, it mm-hmm. probably over time it could just be a fundamental mismatch of goals, and uh, I think uh, that can be kind of managed, and uh, you can prolong a person's time in a team, but fundamentally, they might just need to seek a more aligned team with them. And it's not a fail- failure on anybody's part. Yeah. The, the thing that, that, that struck me is just how much like we are operating in the space of imperfection. You know, there is no, as you said, there's no perfect solution. And so don't, it's like recognize that perfection is an ideal we will not achieve. Move towards it if you can, but don't get stuck if we don't have it. Um, yeah, that, that idea, like it's, it, this is inherently compromised. I, I am inherently compromising just to be here and do this. Um, that's super interesting for me. And I, I think that's probably true to some extent if I apply that to other disciplines as well, but I can really see that for the artist um, because like you said, it's so visual. Yeah. And so your comp- your compromise is in front of everybody getting feedback and you're like, but I wanted more time. You want more time, you want it to be different, you want to, this champion to look exactly like how you designed it instead of, you know, other people giving input. I mean, in a perfect world, I think uh, artists 
a lot of artists would welcome technical feedback, but not so much opinion feedback because like, mm. you know, we, we, we are, have the luxury of creating this piece of artwork that can appear to be our own. And, you know, it can be tempting to think of this piece of artwork, this concept or, or asset to be just mine. But when you're working on a game and product, it, that, that is extremely not true. The, the asset mm. and the, the uh, belongs to the team and it has to serve the project. I actually think of a game art as a, I think of many, most game departments as more like a support discipline. Um, in fact, I think uh, the, the best teams um, go in with a support mindset and each department support each other in doing the work. For example, art support design. If designer mm -hmm. needs something to read, then we do that. And uh, it's not a, it shouldn't be seen as like, oh man, this is annoying designers, right? We're trying to make a game that's, that plays well. And uh, in the, when there's a lot of action on screen, we want people to be able to see what the hell is going on. So I want to jump to the idea of the blank page because you mentioned that earlier. Um, and like I said, you showed up and you just went in and did something. The blank page was suddenly not blank. And like I said, I felt like it, it you know, it kickstarted some things in the team. Even if it was just some people were like, it doesn't work or I don't like it or whatever. And I mean, I thought it was great, but you know, I'm not the right guy to ask about the art stuff as much. So um, uh, how do you encourage somebody who's in your space, like an artist who's stuck at the blank page? Um, you know, cause you just said like your philosophy is I just put something down. I just put it and I don't care what it is, but the, I, as somebody who occasionally does a little bit of like writing, um, that can be so hard. Uh, and I feel like it's so easy for me to get locked up, um, and, and stuck. Like I, I don't know what to write or I'm not sure exactly how it's going to come off or it's going to be misunderstood or, you know, I don't have enough time right now or whatever. It is. I don't feel creative enough. And so I'll just leave it blank. I leave the page blank. Um, how, how do you relate to someone who's there? Maybe what advice would you give me? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, it is very intimidating because uh, when you see a blank page, in fact, I, I personally feel this. If I start a new sketchbook, I only use wirebound sketchbooks because then if I start a bad page, I can just tear it out and throw it away <laughs> and I don't have to look at it. <laughs> I think in some ways it's the same mindset we have to take when we are faced with blank pages in development. Um, yeah, I've worked with uh, a couple of folks who are really hesitant in um, how to proceed. There are people who really need to understand the entire process before before they can work. And sometimes uh, it's, uh, especially earlier on in a prototype or early in a project, there's no process. So um, I make sure they understand that instead of waiting for me to give them process, they are the people who are going to make the process because mm -hmm. uh, they th it's their department, they're the expert. I can make sure the process actually works for the greater picture, but uh, exactly how that process is, that person should feel very empowered to do it. And then, yeah, it's just a, a bunch of, uh, I affirm, I keep affirming the, uh, the, the artists that the, they know what they're doing because they're experienced and they are. And uh, I keep encouraging them to do, to put something down on paper to kind of uh, present something to the team. I don't, I don't tend to do this forcefully unless there's a real time limit. If there's a real time limit, there are times there I think it might just work that if you or I become that person to throw some something really bad onto the page just to break that ice. But uh, whenever possible, I try to 
just relentlessly encourage that person (laughs) to put something down and uh, over Mm. you know over some time they usually will do it Mm -hmm. they'll they'll start kind of feeling bad they'll try it and uh, they get good you know they usually get reactions that at least they get feedback then they'll feel clearer about where they're going then i you know find out that look we are now a lot clearer on where we're doing what we're doing because of you did this thing and rinse and repeat yeah i want i want to talk more about this because from my perspective and i can feel myself my anxiety going up a little bit as we talk about some of this um and i think one of the reasons why is because i dare say out of the three of us i'm probably the outlier in my style and approach with a lot of this stuff um which is totally okay, but there's an elephant in the room here. What I actually really love what you guys are talking about right now, because it implies something that I believe strongly, which is that progress really matters. Like there's a primacy of progress and there's a primacy of outcome. And there's a primacy of, hey, at the end of the day, we're trying to ship a product here that players love. And so that hopefully they love it enough to give us money so we can all keep having paychecks. Um, and, And then we all win, right? And that's, that, that's the ideal outcome. And I think that that's always the way my brain has worked when it comes to this. And, and you know, contrast that with, for example, stories, Ben, that you have told where artists or creatives have said to you, like, I will not work on that unless I have the time and the focus mm-hmm. to make that. I'm going to use the per- word perfect. It's probably not the fair word to use, but you, you know the stories that I'm referring to. Yeah. And I've been there as well. And and that's contrary to what you guys are advocating for right now and the lessons that you're actually trying to instill with, hey, just pull out a piece of paper and give it a shot. Um, Like if it becomes this larger than life thing that needs to be achieved, then what's most likely to happen is that we'll never do anything. You know, we'll never be able to do anything because it's too big. It's too much. It's so overwhelming. We'll, we'll never get around to it, right? So you have to start somewhere. It's just like one foot in front of the other. It's actually a very, there's a lot of wisdom in that. And so I, th- I guess the elephant in the room there, back to what I was saying is, I find myself, I think, experiencing frustration as a leader at times because there's always that thread in the back of my head that's like, who's paying your paycheck? Who's paying your paycheck? Who's paying your paycheck? And then also as a gamer, and no doubt you guys can empathize with this as well, we've all been in situations where we're like looking at some indie game we're following on Steam and looking at their development process. And they're like, yeah, we get it. We know we're eight months late on all of our commitments, but look at this cool art we made. And you're just like, ah, you know, (laughs) and it's just, and I, I know I'm being a little reductionist here, but I guess the point I'm making is like, how do how do you really balance that? Like, I get that, like, you have the geese that are laying golden eggs and we all love them and you give them massages and you give them the best grains, right? So they keep laying golden eggs. But at the end of the day, like, isn't a golden egg, like, something you can actually sell? Isn't the golden egg, like, actually making development progress? Isn't the golden egg actually delighting players? I feel like sometimes we convince ourselves that the golden egg is making really cool stuff or making people inside the studio happy and i'm like mm. i i don't think so and like there's a part of my brain that says sometime we have to just be soldiers and we have to like grit our teeth a little bit and just do the job and do the hard thing and and do what players need us to do and um i i don't know a- am i 
is this like an emotional response I'm having or is is there this perfect balance? Like I, 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 I sometimes worry as a front of the room leader that the new narrative is like, if we just make everyone in the studio happy enough and we empathize enough, then everything's going to work out. And there's a part of my brain that's like, <laughs> no, it's not. No, no. No, um, it's not. I, I think... Uh, I think it's, I think it's a little bit like uh, the balance between, um, you know, when you're interacting with someone, you want to acknowledge their needs, but you also want to help them. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like being a good friend. That's how yeah. I how I see um, both like uh, running a good team, uh, um, also just being a leader. In some ways, you're just being a good friend to mm-hmm. to someone. Um, first of all, I think uh, you touched on this. Uh, almost age-long struggle between being product-focused and the being people-focused, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I I also think uh, that the end answer is kind of in the middle and also don't think that two, these two aspects are exclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, if you're fully people-focused, like a lot, a lot of us, uh, when we talk about this stuff, we talk about, we're talking about extremes. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it's really not that clean. Mm-hmm. So if you're fully product focused, uh, you you would do let people do whatever they want, um, given whatever time they they need, and the product can ship whenever, at in a whatever form that they ended up. Right, this mm-hmm. is like the extreme, but in reality, nobody's gonna like that either, because mm-hmm. the product will never ship. <laughs> and it will not look cohesive if it, if it, if it did shift in like. But that never happens though, so not in our industry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like uh, in, in the mainstream development, where there is a set budget, sure. But uh, yeah. I, I mean, there, there are situations, you know, we have like some really popular game. It's like one person in the closet working nine years. Mm-hmm. So you could say that project is like human focus first, yeah. like and nothing else, because it's one person trying to make himself happy. Mm-hmm. But end of the day, when it comes to the team, um, everybody wants. Nobody's happy when the team when the game slips, when the mm-hmm. schedule just goes out of the window. Everybody's upset. Um, nobody's happy if a game just uh, languishes and meanders for five years. Everybody wants to shift the game in within two to three years usually. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, but uh, going to extreme to the product focus, like we don't care about these people. They they are just soldiers and like uh, they are. I'm not I'm not saying you you are saying that, but yeah, like, yeah. Just, just taking this all the way to the extremes. Like uh, people are just. Well, I mean, like let's be honest, we, that's happened a lot. Like our yeah. our I say our industry is notorious for that historically yeah. going back. Like all like even to the point where it's like the people are dispensable. You know what I mean? Like we'll burn them all out, and you know what? Screw it. We'll just get a new QA team after this. Like well, they'll all quit, and then we'll get thirty more. Right? There's always a fre- There's always some fresh blood <laughs> coming out of college or whatever. You know, and uh, even to the point back in the day, you know, like the QA to just use QA as an example. Back in the old day, when the console games. Um, were they were like farms, like they were literally all sitting in rows and they had like set hours and they were fed like specific tasks. Like it was just almost like a factory, you know, the way that they worked and no one really they cared that much about them, um, honestly, as people or what their individual goals were. Right. So we have a bad history of that, actually. That, but uh, I would argue that uh, thankfully people are getting better at mm-hmm. it and the culture has shifted and at least began shifting that way. Um, I remember the first time I heard a kid interviewing for an entry-level position on our team. 
uh, the first question out of like three candidates' mouths was like, "Do you guys crunch?" I was so proud mm. of these people. Mm. This is a this is the mindset of the, our new talent now. Um, people no longer accept crunch. They no mm. longer accept the hustle culture. Um, they no longer accept being treated badly. And uh, over over time, studios they're conversation groups that mean that literally says do not go to the studio mm-hmm. they will burn you out and chew you up and spit you out as like crumbs yeah don't go there and this mm. is getting more and more common information is flowing more freely when i started i didn't know anything about the industry people now come into the industry extremely prepared they understand mm. what they're getting into they've heard the horror stories and they don't want to be the the main character in those horror stories so i think the the fully product focus and the burn the people up it's not only ethically wrong. I think it's on the practical level, I don't think it'll work well for the studio long term anymore. You know, one thing I think that's really interesting that you've sort of illuminated because you said it, it's actually a complex idea, but you said it's like in the middle. It's the, and we're talking about these things in terms of extremes. And unfortunately, in our industry, we have seen a lot of extremes. But what I actually think is beautiful is, and Ben and I talk a lot about this because Ben is like people first always. And I am like results first always. But one of the things that's interesting is we could both be characterized as one of those extremes, but the reality is that neither of us are on the extreme. And Mm -hmm. if you put our circles over each other, we're like 99.999999% the same decisions we would make in every situation. It's just the way we frame the world. And and I, I love what you just said because I think that the goal is really still in many respects to make great products for players, right? Um, But what you're saying is people are now saying, no, I'm not going to let you ruin my life in the process. And you also mentioned this idea of it's like a friend, which I thought is interesting. And for some reason, the thought just came up like if your friend called you at three in the morning and said, I'm in the hospital, you would go. You wouldn't say like, hey, look, this is outside of my uh, core hours, excuse mm-hmm. me. You'd go because it's your friend and you care about the person. So I actually, I think you're right. I think it is more complicated. It's like when I think about crunch, what I really think about is working extremely long hours for an employer that doesn't care about me for a product that might never ship. Um, it, I th- honestly, when I think about crunch, I think uh, it's probably caused by passion, but uh, in my book, Mm. Sustained crunch is almost always just failure in the leadership. Hundred percent. Yeah, that's exactly. And and I think that failure of the leadership, whether it's intentional or not, I think is a reflection of, in the end, maybe we are poor planners. Maybe we aren't great leaders. Maybe there are lessons that we need to learn that we refuse to acknowledge. But at least we can just tax our people more. We can just raise taxes, basically, if we need to at the last minute. So I think it, it, I view that as a reflection of like you in the end, you're, you're, you're nodding to the idea that your people are dispensable, right? And I, I think that's totally wrong. Um, but what I'm, what I'm getting at is like, I can imagine another scenario where the team actually decides that because they care about players so much or they care about the goals so much that they make decisions that you wouldn't expect them to make. Like, hey, we're going to work longer this week or whatever and then take days off afterwards or, you know what I mean? It's it's not so much about the details as much as it is about how you're actually running your organization. Yeah, I yeah. think uh, 
Yeah, I'm I'm a huge fan of not planning for crunch whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Actually, try to not plan for crunch. Building contingency plans, building stuff to cut, building padding. A lot of this, mm-hmm. I'm sure you guys know better than I do. Um, but uh, yeah, as someone who was at one time very passionate and uh, worked a lot of uh, even unpaid overtime, I, I had done stuff like work under the table and uh, not tell my work. So I mm. I don't have to clock in and they don't have to mm. pay me overtime and nobody has to know. And I just, you know, get this mm. like, little extra polishing, but it's so bad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, again, as, uh, as game developers, we don't like just super rigid rules. So if the team actually decides to, to do a little sprint to push something through the door, I think the first, the most important thing is to make sure nobody feel peer, peer pressure to do this because mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. different pe- different teammates will have different, they're at different stages in life. They have different priorities. At one point, I found out one of my former teammates, at one of the former teams was literally bouncing a baby on, on their laps, working voluntary overtime. And that was really messed up to me. This is a... And they're doing this because they're passionate, but also because the whole team's doing it, so they feel like they have to do it. Mm-hmm. And let's uh, let's avoid this. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, as as like older developers now, we know better. We we know what burnout looks like. We know how to 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 for people to perform at their peak level. They have to have downtime. They have to have time with their family. They have to have like time to maintain the other part of their their lives. Nobody can just work. It's not good for them long term. But this knowledge, I'm not saying we force it down younger, more passionate developers' throats. But I, I think it's it's up to us to help them see uh, what a better balance might look like. Um, maybe we even try to create opportunities in the schedule where we leave pockets of time where we can, you know, this is free time. You can do whatever policy you want during work hours. My experience with Crunch is that it doesn't work like fundamentally certainly not and like I, i've worked with teams where people were burning the weekends um i remember with sru i tried to be really strict because i didn't want there to be crunch and i try, and i like i mean you remember i think i don't remember how annoying it was for you guys but i was like if i can't i kind of said like i can't stop you from crunching you care too much um, i'm not gonna be able to stop you and i wish i could um, if we're going to do it, though, I'm going to say you are not allowed to do more than two weeks. Um, and and I remember kind of trying to hold that line um, with a very passionate team working on what was, you know, I think for many of them, perhaps one of the biggest projects they'd ever done. Um, and, and I always look back at that and I, and I remember thinking, I don't know if we got any more work done. I think there was a lot of camaraderie. But when you, I, I felt almost a little bit of maybe guilt or something. Cause you said like, was there peer pressure there? And I think there was, and I didn't know how to turn it off, um, to work harder. And I, I, I remember struggling a lot with that at that time. Um, and again, when I, when I look at the numbers actually, and you know, Aaron and I are like, in the end, we end up being those process guys who see the numbers over time. It, it, it doesn't, I don't think it works. Um, if there's a value to it, the only one I've ever seen from crunch is some amount of coming together as a team and overcoming the thing. Um, but even when it seems like everybody's working 16 hours a day, shockingly, they don't get that much work, more work done, if any, than they would in eight hour days. And it's, I, I've looked at that, I've thought about that a lot and like the psychological reasons why. But anyway, I just remember that experience back then 
And, um, and I like your approach, you know, like, how do you do this without peer pressure? And if you can't do it without peer pressure, don't do it. Um, you know, you, you have the time you have and it'll be okay. If not everything that you ever needed to get polished, gets polished. It, that's, that's the truth. Um, especially in the world with games as a live service, most of the time, or a lot of the time, like we can, if it's really bad and everybody hates it, we can fix it, you know, in the next patch or the next cycle, whatever it is. Um, anyway, there's just some thoughts I had. I don't know. I'm curious what that popped up for you. Right. And I think a part of it is understanding to hit a level of quality people are not ashamed of, which I, I think it's, it should be something that, I mean, we probably couldn't hit a level of quality where everybody's super proud of. That's might be not realistic. But I also think it's important to understand what the quality bar is. Mm -hmm. So if the art team is to just like doodle something and you can see the brush marks and then it's going out to the market, it's very distressing for the art team, right? Mm -hmm. So understanding what the minimum bar there is and mm -hmm. how long it actually takes to deliver the content according to that bar, that the really low bar, but still is the bar, um, and not schedule things, something that's not achievable over that period of time. I think that is really, really important. A lot of times I hear people say, um, we don't want teams to crunch. Then they also say, we want this uh, five levels, so we want it in two weeks. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's what happened in SRU, but uh, this is that's, this is the kind of thing I do see where then, then, then everybody's surprised that people are crunching. Like, we didn't want you to crunch. You could just ship this thing. And uh, the this, this part of it is professional pride. Like, we all have it. I mean, if... We are all okay cutting some corners, but if we're like, in the, if our entire task is cutting all the corners, we'll quickly, very quickly lose steam, no matter what it is. I don't mm. believe this is just art either. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I honestly think um, in engineering it can be worse because there's a more tangible mid to long term impact of those corner cutting. Like at, in art, to some, you can have art debt. But like the art debt doesn't make it harder for you to do art in the future. Technical it does debt. a little bit. Yeah. Because well, like, yeah. 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 What what ended up happening? The the it's not equivalent to engineering debt, right? Yeah. The art debt is more like someone does the asset really fast. Yeah. And then someone else decides to reuse that asset, and then suddenly yeah. you have two hundred assets in the game that all uses a part that is completely unfinished okay. and it'll look really bad. But if you want to fix it, it's a, it's a monitor. If you have like a design guide or a style guide like that, okay, and people are reusing, yeah, that's which is actually an awesome way to approach the problem. But yeah, that's interesting. That that actually makes it much more like traditional tech debt if you have if you have a style guide. Yeah. Yeah. So is there like you know, we said we're we're wrapping up here. What what else do you have to say? Anything that you want to finish with or thoughts you have? Um, just want to give you that opportunity. Um, I guess uh, my biggest takeaway with the, the, the leadership is uh, people should understand each other's goals. And uh, we are, I, I sincerely believe our goals are just like us, just like people, our goals are more similar than different. I think there are, there are yeah. individual individual goals that are maybe fall out of the, the team goals once in a while, and I think that's normal. I think we can all manage it to an extent. I also think it's important to be honest. If a, a person's go, like personal goals are just fundamentally different than the team, then maybe maybe that person and the team shouldn't try to force force each other to kind of be together. I think this should be. I, I always believe work should be a relationship that. Uh, 
each party gets uh, gets some gets something out of it. Of course, yeah. Right. So if an individual stops feeling fulfilled at work, no matter what, um, this relationship is, might just not be working. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, thanks a ton, Grace, for coming on and uh, talking to us about leadership and creativity and imposter syndrome and how to get going when you've got a blank piece of paper and all the things. Um, this has been super interesting for me and, and uh, I appreciate your insight. Um, for our listeners out there, thank you. And we'll hope to have something else for you to listen to soon on Building Better Games. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Building Better Games with Aaron and Ben. If you have comments, questions, or would like to work with Ben and Aaron, shoot an email to info at That's info at V-A-L-A-R-I-N consulting.com. Please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Valarin Inc. We'll catch you next time.